you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, we're going to continue our study in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 6. So I'm actually going to start this morning by just reading our passage. So we're going to be in verses 45 through 56. So Mark 6, 45 through 56 is where we'll be. So you should be there. I'm going to read. You can follow along as I read, beginning in verse 45. Mark 6, 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After he, had taken them, after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he alone was on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them, and he said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Verse 53, When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gesineret, and they moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him, and they ran about the whole region, and they began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Well, so in our passage this morning, the, the title, it didn't make it in the bulletin, but the title is Jesus and the Hard-Hearted Disciples. And so if you're taking notes, that's the title. We have Jesus and the Hard-Hearted Disciples. And, and that, I, I've titled it that way because I think those two aspects are the things that Mark wants us to recognize from this passage. Those are the two themes that kind of rise to the top. So the first we see Jesus. So I think the first thing that Mark wants us to recognize from this passage is, is just who Jesus is, the nature of this man. And if you've been with us through the Gospel of Mark, thus far the question that, that's been answered over and over and over again is, is who is this man? That's a question that is, that is continually answered, is the identity of Jesus. And so Mark has not let us lose sight of the fact that this man is no ordinary man. He does things that only God does. He says things that only God can say. And he knows things that only God can know. And so throughout this Gospel of Mark, this, this passage not excluded, Mark wants us to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the promised one. And we're going to see that clearly on display in our passage. In fact, one of, one of the, the main points of this passage, if you ever heard this passage preached on, if you ever read this, one of the most, uh, most evident things is that it's a miracle, that, that Jesus walks on the water. And, and Mark clearly intends for us to understand and believe that, that Jesus did, in fact, walk on the water. He, he didn't have these stepping stones. There wasn't this, this naturalistic ex, explanation. It's simply that Jesus walked on water because of who he was. And so that's the first point, the, the, the nature, the identity of Jesus. But a second main point that, that's actually related to the first is the unbelief or the hard-heartedness of the disciples. And their hard-heartedness, their slow understanding, it's remarkable because of what we see in who Jesus is. 
And so it's not only that, that, that he's walking on water and they're hard-hearted, but, but remember last week, he, he multiplied bread and loaves to feed 5,000 plus people, and they saw that, and they knew that he was the source of that, and yet they're still hard-hearted. And so these disciples are being exposed over and over to the supernatural realities of, of the person of Jesus, and yet they still don't get it. And so that's the other, other theme of our passage. And so we're going to see Jesus clearly revealed as God in the flesh, and instead of having a boat full of men who recognize that clear revelation and respond with, with worship and faith, instead we're going to see the men of unbelievable unbelief. They, just, they don't get it. And it's easy for us to read it and say, well, how in the world do they miss it? And we're going to ask that question, but, but before we too quickly find fault with them, we're also going to think carefully about some ways that we, like them, are often tempted to live lives of faith void of faith and motivated by unbelief. So, so that will come later, but, but that's where we're going. So there's the two themes, Jesus and the hard-heartedness of the disciples. And so let's work through our passage together. I have the outline up there. Um, this, I broke it down into three sections. Okay, so we'll work through those three sections one at a time. See the separation, verses 45 through 47. Then we see the, the main part of the passage is the trouble at sea, there verses 48 through 52. And then, then finally, kind of the, the summary statement at the end, the, the continued ministry of Jesus in verses 53 through 56. So let's start with a separation, verses 45 through 47. So you, if you have your Bible, it would help to, to be looking down, keep your finger there in Mark chapter 6. And so immediately following, this, this takes place immediately following a supernatural feeding of 5,000 where everyone eats and has their fill. And then Jesus, here in our passage, he immediately sends the disciples to the other side of the sea. So he says, get in the boat and go to Bethsaida which we'll see, they never actually get to Bethsaida, but that's what he says. He says, go to Bethsaida. And if you're thinking geographically, that would have been where they are. Um, I'm, I'm going backwards, but, but from where they are, it's, it's northeast of where, of where they are. So Bethsaida, they were just going to take a short trip along the, north, the northwest coast of, of the, the Sea of Galilee. And so he says, go. And while, while he sends them away, Jesus says, I'll, I'll dismiss the crowds. And so he dismisses the crowd, and then in verse 47, when evening came, the boat was out at sea, and he was alone on the land. So there's separation. He sends him away, and he stays behind. Jesus was alone on the mountain. Now, now Mark, he doesn't say anything about the dismissal other than that Jesus took care of it. He dismissed them. But, but it's interesting that in John chapter 6, so John's another gospel writer, and he records the similar events. In fact, the feeding of the 5,000, that's the only miracle that's recorded in all four gospel writers. But John, when he says that when Jesus dismisses the crowd, listen to, listen to how they respond. He says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who's coming to the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So, so John adds a different, a different slant on what happens. So Mark just says, he dismissed them, then they're out in the sea. But John says when he went to dismiss them, the crowd wants to make him king. So they say, this is our Messiah. This is the one. Let's, let's follow him. Let him lead us. Now, I don't want to make too much of this because, because like I said, Mark doesn't mention it in his account. And, and secondly, we, we, can't, we can't assume to know the mind of Christ in this particular case. So we don't know exactly what he's thinking, but, but just imagine with me the scene. So if you kind of combine Mark and John's account and try, try to, to put them together, Think about what's just happened. Jesus, he's seen these 5,000 people. So remember when he goes up on the shore, he sees them, he has compassion on them. Why? Because they're like sheep without a shepherd. Okay, and so he, he meets their needs. He has this, this love, this compassion for them. Okay, they're satisfied. They have their fill. Okay, so he meets their needs. 
and then they want to make him their king. So, so here's these shepherdless sheep who say, wow, this man, he can be our shepherd. He can lead us. Let, let's make him king. And so Jesus, we know his heart for them has compassion, and here he is sending them away. No, no, no. I can't be your king. Not now. And so imagine the difficulty for Jesus. And I think this is probably part of the reason why he goes up on the mountain to pray. I mean, why wouldn't the Father's plan involve him leading these people right here, right now? Okay, yeah, these people are sheep without a shepherd. You're here. They want you to lead them. Why couldn't Jesus take up their cause and lead him? Why, why couldn't he be crowned right there on the mountain and, and begin leading them? Well, the fact is none of those are part of the plan. Jesus would, in fact, be a king. He would, in fact, lead the shepherdless sheep. He was the prophet who had come into the world, but the way that Jesus would establish his rule, it didn't involve what they thought. It involved suffering and death. He was required to submit to the Father's plan. He had to be reminded, and and I think he had to remind himself who he was and, and why he had come. He had come to die, to lay his life down as a ransom for many. And so I think we can learn from Jesus here. I think at least, at least secondarily, we can learn that, that just like the life of Jesus was, was lived in dependence on God, the Christian life is a life of dependence on God. And so I think here when Jesus is up, up praying, I think one of the conversations he's having is, is a not my will conversation. So I think he's saying, okay, Father, I know that there's a plan, but, but, but if it's possible, could I lead them now? But he prays and he's reminded, that, that's, not my, that's not God's plan. That's not the Father's plan for me. So, so I'm sending them away. I'm reminding myself why I'm not leading them right now, right here. And so simply put, if, if we have the Son of God, if we have Christ himself seeking to be alone with the Father in prayer, how much more ought we strive to do the same? And more specifically, if we're seeking to, to understand, to know our purpose as Christians, our identity as Christians, our, our priorities as Christians— Apart from time with God, apart from fellowship and communion with Him, apart from our dependence on Him, it's, it's no wonder we find ourselves lost, lacking, questioning everything. Right? If you take away the, this dependence on God that's shown in prayer and communion with God, then, then you're lost at sea with, without a compass. But God has given us prayer to express our dependence on Him. And so, so simply application, brother or sister, if you're here and you're Christian, your dependence on God is put your dependence on God is put on display by your prayer life. And so I just ask you, how, how, how's your dependence going? It's convicting for me as, as I was reading through this last night. It's convicting. How, how's your dependence going? Because if, if your prayer life is not thriving, you're, you're telling yourself that I can do it alone, that I don't need Him. And so, so just, just here, you're dependent on God. Well, then secondly, we, we get to the second section, the trouble at sea, verses 48 through 52. So there are 48. These verses form, as, as I mentioned, the, the high point of the passage. This is where all the action takes place. This is where the nature of Jesus, we see him walking on water, but we also see the hard-heartedness of the disciples. So this is kind of the climax of this account. And so verse 48, notice that, that Mark records the disciples are making headway painfully. I wonder how many of you are, are fishermen or you've ever been in a rowboat and you know exactly what it means by making headway painfully. So he sends them away by themselves into the boat in order to cross the other side. So that's what he tells them. And there they are, unable to make much headway. So, I mean, they're following his orders, but, but they can't do it. These are lifelong fishermen, and they can't make headway on this sea. And notice it's not even like the last time that we found them in the middle of a storm, f- afraid for their lives. It's just some wind and some waves that they, they can't make headway. They're rowing and rowing. They can't 
get to their destination. And so this painful headway, I think, is, is a lesson for them. I think Jesus sends them there knowing that he's going to teach them a lesson. A lesson simply that when the master is absent from the disciples, they, they find themselves in distress. Right? When the master's not there, they, there's trouble. Again, they're dependent on him. So he sends them out. They, they need him. They can't even row across the sea when he's not with them. But notice the beginning of verse 48. Notice what Mark records. You see that down there in verse 48? And he saw that they were making headway painfully. He saw them. So Jesus, he, he wasn't with them in the boat, but he saw their plight. He said he sees, he knows what's going on. And so at the end of verse 48, he comes to them about the fourth watch of the night. Now, now I know that the, the, the phrase at the end of verse 48, we're going to look at that. But first, let me make a couple of points. First, the, the fourth watch. This is, this is late, late at night or early, early in the morning, depending on when you want to look at it. It's about 3 a.m., Okay, so this is the fourth watch of the night. So the, these men have been rowing all night. Remember, he sent them away, sent the crowds away when it was getting dark. So you assume that's, what, that's when they start rowing. So it's, it's been hours that they've been rowing. And, and Jesus sees them, he sees their plight, and that their inability to make headway is what seems to motivate Jesus' action. So, so what, I'm, what I'm saying is he sees them, and then he says, okay, I'm going to go out to them. It seems that... He, he comes to them in response to their struggling. So do you see that? He, his coming is an attempt to address their problem. Okay, so, so they have an issue, so he's going to go to them. And so this cause and effect is important in order to understand what the phrase in verse 48 meant, means when it says he meant to pass them by. Okay, so, so what, I'm, what I'm saying is, is he sees them, they're in trouble, and so he goes to them. And so why would Mark say in, at the end of verse 48 that he meant to pass them by? That's the, the ESV says he meant to pass them by. If you have the NIV, it says he was about to pass them by, which that's a way of explaining it. Or the King James says he would have passed them by. Or the NASB, he intended to pass by them. And so the question I want to ask is, well, why would he pass them by? Do you see, do you see that the tension, if his motivation for coming to them was their plight, their inability to make headway, well, then why would he simply decide to just pass them by? And so I'm convinced that, that, his, that Jesus intends to pass them by in order. So it's a purposeful passing by. Not just simply, I'm going to go by and not worry about them, but rather it's passing them by for a purpose, to show them something. And I'm going to argue he's passing them by in order for them to recognize who he is. It's a passing by that's supposed to display, put on, put on display his glory. It's a passing by that's to clearly reveal his identity. So that's what I'm going to, what I'm going to argue and so I'm going to give you four reasons why I think that. So stick with me now. I know that all of them by themselves, they're not very convincing. I recognize that. But, but I think when you consider all these things together, I think it's a, a pretty strong case. So the first thing, the first reason is the phrase, quote, he meant to pass them by. Okay, so that phrasing, that wording itself has an Old Testament background. And so just like the disciples, there, there were two instances in the Old Testament where there are two others who are said to be passed by. Maybe you know, know those, but, but in Exodus 33, it's verse 18 and following. Exodus 33, 18 and following, if you want to write that down. But Moses is interacting with the Lord, and, and Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And so that's when the Lord puts Moses in the cleft of the rock while he passes by. And so there with that instance, the Lord passes by Moses, and it's a revelatory passing by. It's so that you see my glory, Moses. And so the purpose, 
the Lord wanted Moses to know who he was, and so he passes by him. The other instance is 1 Kings 19. It's verse 11, but, but it's after this miraculous display of power through the prophet Elijah, where, where then he runs away because a queen wants to kill him, and so Elijah is running for his life, and he's so discouraged. And the Lord met Elijah on the mountain, and he passed by him, and it was his presence. His, his, it's a revelatory act to encourage Elijah. And so the, the wind passes by, but the Lord wasn't in the wind or in the earthquake or in the fire. But again, in a whisper, the Lord passes by Elijah. And the Lord passed by Elijah in order to encourage him and reveal something about himself. And so I'm, I'm making the argument that when Mark says that Jesus intended or he meant to pass by them, I think this is how Mark is thinking that Jesus is, is going to pass by them in order to show them who he is in the same way that the God of the Old Testament passed by Elijah and Moses. So that's the first point, that the, the, the actual wording of pass them by or pass by them has an Old Testament background. Secondly, Jesus, the, the, the fact that he's walking on water has an Old Testament background. Now, every single commentary that I looked at referenced Job chapter 9. So you can write down, you don't have to turn there, but Job chapter 9, you can read through that chapter, but the entire chapter, it's in the midst of the, this discussion between Job and his friends. Um, but, but the chapter is filled with statements about the majesty and the might of God, of the Lord. And here's some things that, that are attributed to the Lord. It says, I think it's verses 3 and 4 and following, but it says that the Lord removes mountains, the Lord shakes the earth, the Lord commands the sun, the Lord seals up the stars, the Lord stretches out the heavens. So you see all of, all of these categories of, of this might, this power, this, this universal sovereign power of the Lord. And then in verse 9, it says that the Lord trampled on the waves of the sea. Or if you have a different translation, treads on the waves of the sea. And so there's only one person who walks on the water. There's only one person. So Jesus, in coming to them by, by walking on the water and passing by them, the fact that he's walking on the water, I think, is showing them who he is. You know, Job, you know what Job said about the Lord who tramples on the seas? Well, well that's me. I'm, I'm actually walking on the water. This miracle points to his identity. One, one commentator writes, Jesus did not walk on the water as an amusing gimmick to astound his friends. Sometimes I really think, oh, that's a cool party trick. Right? That's not the point. That's not what Jesus is doing. His action conveys to disciples and to us, the readers, who he is. He comes as a divine figure to rescue his foundering, floundering disciples. But there's another reason. So that's two. So we have the passing by language. We have the walking on water language. But then a, a third reason is his response in verse 50. So, so if we, we continue through our, our text in verse 49, we see that, that the passing by, okay, it's totally lost on the disciples. They don't get it. So he, he passes by, but when they see him, okay, walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And so they cry out, for they all, were, they all saw him, and they were terrified. And so the, the disciples in the boat, they see Jesus walking on water, coming to them in the fourth watch of the night, passing by, and their response is the opposite of what it should have been. Now, now sure, we'll give them a, 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 you know, a grace period and say, okay, maybe you're scared at first, but eventually you should say, wow, that's Jesus, and he's walking on the water. Wow, worship, amazement. But that's not what we get. That's, they, don't, they don't respond correctly. Instead, they respond opposite of how they should have. They missed this revelatory action taken by Jesus, yet, even though they miss it, Jesus continues his revelatory action, and that's his response in verse 50. So he addresses them. He says, take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. 
Take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. Now, now this simply could be a statement of identity. Okay, so, so some of you will say, well, that, that's just you saying, don't be afraid, it's me. Now, that's possible, right? If, if they're afraid, they see a ghost. Jesus says, hey, don't be afraid, it's just me. So it could just be a mere statement of identity. That, that phrase is used very, very basically as a statement of identity. So that's possible. But what I'm going to argue in this context is that this statement, this it is I or it is me, is much more significant. In fact, I'm going to argue it's pregnant with meaning. Because as one commentator says, it can possess deeper significance as the recognized formula of self-revelation with which rests ultimately on the I am that I am of Exodus, 30, of Exodus 3.14. And so in other words, what, what, what that guy's saying and what I'm saying is that the Greek phrase used here is the same exact Greek phrase that in John's gospel, John uses when, a, when Jesus is talking to the, to, the, to the Pharisees and says, before Abraham was, I am. The, the phrase is, ego I me, I am. And that's the same phrase that is used here in Mark. And what's more than that, there, there's a thing called a Septuagint. So the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but there's an early translation that was in, in Greek, and it's called the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, when God is talking to Moses in Exodus 3, and Moses says, Who's, who should I tell them sent me? God says, tell them that I am sent you. Where that, that, is a, that is a statement of the identity of God, the name of God, I am. And I'm saying that, that here, when Jesus says, don't be afraid, I am. I think that's what he's intending to, to convey to these guys, to these disciples. I think, and I think in the context, Jesus is continuing to attempt to reveal himself and his true identity to his disciples. Not to mention, he gets in the boat and the, the wind ceases. Again, that, that's not coincidence. And so Jesus' action and Mark's record are making bold claims that, that Jesus is God in the flesh. I think his identity is, is, is rising to the top here. And then the last, the last reason that I'm thinking that, that I'm arguing that, that I want you to think that, is because of Mark's comment there in verse 52. So Mark adds a comment on what's going on there. So Mark records that they were utterly astounded so when he gets in the boat and everything, everything stops, it says they were utterly astounded. Now, that sounds like it could be positive, right? Wow, okay, that's good. They were astounded. But Mark continues verse 42, and he says the reason they were astounded is because they didn't understand about the loaves and their hearts were hardened. And so Mark is saying this utterly astounding, astonishment, astonishment maybe, the reason for that is because of their hard-heartedness. So that tells me this isn't a good response, this, this, this astounding isn't good. So Mark seems to be saying that their inability to rightly recognize the identity of Jesus here stemmed from a failure to rightly recognize the identity of Jesus in the previous verses, which is why Mark says they didn't understand about the loaves. So you see, this is connected with what came before. Mark is doing that. So, so what about the loaves don't they understand? I mean, certainly they realize that, that the multitude have been fed with five loaves and two fish. They understood that, right? They saw it. They were the ones who were taking all the leftovers, and they're the ones who brought up all the leftovers. So they knew what he had done, but what Mark is arguing is that they failed to grasp that this event pointed beyond itself to the person behind the event. They didn't get it. So the feeding, the miracle of the feeding of 5,000 was, was about more than simply the feeding of 5,000 people. That wasn't its ultimate purpose. Just like here, the walking on water was about more than simply a man walking on water. And so if the disciples would have understood the miracle of the loaves, 
they would have recognized Jesus' identity as the sovereign Lord who walks upon the waves of the sea. But these miracles, they were met not with faith, but with hard hearts. These disciples, those who should have gotten it, they didn't get it. And so let me make two quick applications from that, or one application. One application from that. No, there's two. They're related, though. So first application, Jesus is aware of your plight. Jesus is aware of your plight. In the same way that these disciples thought they were outside of Jesus' view, they're out in the middle of the sea, Jesus isn't with them, they think they're separated from his care and his presence. This story shows that that no matter how dire the circumstances, Jesus sees. Jesus is aware of your plight. He is the good shepherd. If you're a believer here this morning, he, he does care for you. Maybe some of you need to hear that this morning. Sometimes it's in the midst of life's hardest circumstances that it, that it seems impossible to believe that Jesus cares for you. But it's at those times that, that Jesus sees you. When it seems he's the farthest, that's when you need this truth. He sees your suffering, your hardship. Is, it, Jesus does not turn a blind eye to you. He sees your plight. If you hear us hurting this morning, you have a shepherd who sees and who cares for you. Though all else screams otherwise, Jesus screams, I do. And so not only does, is he aware of your plight, but he's able to remedy your plight. The ability to remedy your situation is not too difficult for him, no matter what your situation is. And I know there's probably some hard ones here. But the remedy is not too hard for him. No waves are too high. No wind is too strong. No disease is too bad. No situation too hard. Jesus is able, and often he does. And often he does, but sometimes, sometimes he lets you keep trying to row against the waves on your own. Maybe you found that to be true. Sometimes he, he's happy to, to withhold his hand and withhold his remedy to let you see that you can't do it on your own. Sometimes he, he's willing to stay his hand in order to show you your utter need for him. Just like the disciples, all night getting nowhere. When we attempt to make headway apart from our master, it's always painful headway. And so maybe this morning you need to hear that Jesus is aware of and able to remedy your plight. Let me just encourage you, he is trustworthy. Don't be like the disciples. Don't fail to understand about the loaves. Don't miss the point. He's able. He's able and he's trustworthy. And so if you're here, you're a follower of Jesus, you're, you're not expected to be fearless in every circumstance. That's not what I'm saying but you are expected to learn from God's faithfulness in the past and to grow in your faith for the future. Knowing that you have a good shepherd, you have a master of the sea. And so Jesus is aware and able to remedy your plight. And then lastly, our, our last section, section three, the continued ministry, verses 53 through 56. So there's a break. Jesus, verse 53, tells us that they cross over and they come to the land of Gisineret. Gennesaret, sorry. So geographically speaking, if you remember back in 45, they set out towards Bethsaida, okay, which I, I mentioned was northeast, but verse 53, they don't get to Bethsaida. Instead, they arrive at Gennesaret, which is southwest of where they started. And so even after Jesus enters the boat, they've been thrown off so far off their course that they landed a des- destination far from where they were headed. Okay, so, so he tells them, go, go northeast, go up the coast a little bit. And when they land, they're actually southwest, Okay, so that's how far they've gone. Okay, so even after Jesus gets in the boat, it's not like, okay, great, we're back on track. No, they still, they can't get to where they're going, and they land at Gennesaret. And so when they land, they finally get to where they're going, they, they get out of the boat, 
And the people immediately recognized him. And, and Mark says that they ran about the whole region and they began to bring him the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. So, so wherever it was that he was going, they said, oh, he's going here next. He's going here next. He's on this road. He's headed that way. Let's get there before him. So they're bringing out droves and droves of people. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid sick people in the marketplaces and they implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. So there's this desperation. The, the healer's here. Let, let's get our people, get the sick to them, and let them even just touch the fringe of the garment. And then Mark records, and as, as many as touched it were made well. And as many as touched it were made well. Regardless of sickness, regardless of past, those who touched the fringe of the garment were made well. It's not an unfamiliar scene. We've seen this before. Mark continues to emphasize the popularity and the miraculous nature of Jesus' ministry. But what I, point, what I want to point out in these verses, specifically in contrast with what immediately preceded these verses, it's the faith of this general population. So they hear Jesus is coming, and they do all they can to get their, their friends, family, sick people near him. Okay, so it's, it's their faith in action. Now I recognize, I want to be careful, because Mark says nothing about the faith of these people. He doesn't say it's their faith that motivated them. That, that, that's something that I'm assuming and I also realize that oftentimes the people, the crowds, generally, they, they, all they care about is the supernatural. They, they couldn't care less about Jesus and his kingdom-bringing ministry. Okay, so I recognize those things. But I think we at least see an illustration of active faith here, of faith that, that entrusts itself to Jesus, faith that runs to Jesus. I mean, I mean, these people, they hear about Jesus and they flock. They have to get to where he's going. And, and it's reminiscent of, of the bleeding woman from chapter 5, if you remember, where she says, I just got to get to Jesus. I've spent all my money on all the doctors and no one's helped me. In fact, I've only gotten worse. So I'm going to get to Jesus if only I can touch his fringe of his garment. And she does so, and the bleeding stops immediately, and she's healed. So that, that's like that woman times 10, times 20, times 50 here in this scene. Whoever touched the fringe was healed. And so I, I see a contrast between the disciples and the others. And so as we close, I simply want us to think about our tendencies to be like the disciples, okay, and to fight those tendencies, but also to, to recognize our call to be somewhat like the crowd. And so here's, here's my last application. It's simply this, that faith recognizes the identity of Jesus and acts accordingly. So faith recognizes the identity of Jesus and acts accordingly. And so I would, I would urge, if you're here and you're a Christian, beware of un unbelief. Even as Christians, we have a tendency to be like the disciples. And so in the same way that the disciples should have trusted, if anyone should have trusted Jesus, it was the disciples. Well, in the same way, Christians of all people, if anyone ought to trust Christ in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of life, in the midst of day after day, it's Christians. I mean, Christian faith is not just for salvation. Trust in Christ is not just for salvation. It, it's, not, it's not, okay, I believed in Jesus, now I'm done, and, and I leave that faith, that trust, that confidence, and now I just seek to live my life on my own. No, Christian faith, it begins at salvation, but it's sustained throughout all of your life. In fact, if nothing, it, it grows as the, the more that you grow in your faithfulness to Christ. And so not just for salvation, trust in Christ, faith in Christ, dependence on Christ doesn't cease after coming to faith, it increases and so we must beware of our tendencies to doubt, to have hearts of unbelief. And so if you're here and you're trusting in Christ, if, if you're a follower of him, what are some ways that, that you struggle, that, that you're tempted to, to not believe? Another way of asking that, or what are some promises that you as a Christian 
have been made by Christ himself that you doubt? Do you doubt that he cares for you? Maybe something's going on. Maybe there's a circumstance. And you say, God can't care for me. Do you doubt that, that God is concerned with every aspect or detail of your life? Do you doubt that God cares how you respond to, to, that, to that child or, or that coworker? That the minute details, God is concerned about every aspect and detail of your life? Do you, do you doubt that God is working all things together for your good? If you're a believer, that, that's a promise that's been made to you. And so all things means all things, and they're all working together for your good. And so you have confidence as you walk through the trials and the suffering. Maybe you doubt that God promises you, promises you eternal life. No matter how bad things get, and things can get pretty bad here, there's always hope. There's the promise of eternal life for you. Do you doubt that, that your life has been redeemed for his purposes? Do you doubt that, that you, no matter how young or how old, the whole spectrum, whether you're, you're young in Christ or whether you're old, old, old in Christ, no matter who you are, you have value and purpose. That you've been saved for a purpose, and that purpose doesn't, doesn't stop when you turn 60 or 65. You've all been given gifts for the sake of, of serving and ministering. So maybe you doubt your value. What good am I? Who loves me? Well, if you're a Christian, that answer is, is an affirmative. God loves you. God cares for you. You're valuable in His eyes, no matter who else says otherwise. So, so I'd simply ask, what are some ways that, that you're tempted to be like disciples? Well, recognize these, the, these tendencies to, to doubt, these, these tendencies of unbelief. And as we recognize them, let us labor to think rightly about the person of Christ. We go back to Jesus and say, these things are true because God is for me, because Jesus died for me. And so in the midst of our unbelief, let us labor to be more like the crowd and less like the disciples. And let us do so, listen to this encouragement, let us do so remembering that Christ is patient. He is patient. He's patient with you. That's good news. I mean, think about the disciples. These, these disciples who, who don't get it, they don't get the loaves, they don't get this revelation, these are still the men that, that he's patient with. The lives of the disciples bear out this patience. What a patient Savior. And so be encouraged, Christian. Your unbelief is, is, is what motivates patience and forbearance and gentleness. We have a patient good shepherd is our Savior. And so be encouraged, Christian. And then lastly, if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're here and you're non-Christian, you haven't, you haven't turned from your sin and, and trusted in Christ as, as the one who, who died on the cross in your place as a substitute, as the one who, who bore the wrath of God so that you could be free, okay, that, that's the gospel, that's the good news, that, that Jesus died in our place so that we who don't deserve relationship, reconciliation with God, that we might be counted as righteous as those who, who can be in relationship with God, that's the gospel. If you're here and you don't, you don't believe that, let me encourage you. Unbelief characterizes everything about you. It's not just certain areas of your life that, that you struggle to believe. It's, it's your entire life. And let me encourage you, whether, whether you trust him or not, Christ is worthy of your trust. If you don't trust him, that doesn't mean he's untrustworthy. He is worthy of your trust, of your confidence. And in fact, he's the only one He's the only one in this world who is worthy of your trust, your confidence, your faith. And let me just tell you, until you put your trust in him, until you put your faith in him, you are a stranger to all the promises that he's made. All the things I've just been talking to you about, these are things, these are promises that God has made 
through Christ to those who trust him. And if you're not trusting in Christ, none of these promises are yours. You have no stake in any of the things that I was just talking about. No hope of eternal life. No promise that all things are working for your good. No promise of, of care and shepherding. None of these things are for you. But they're all readily available for you. They're all available to you, but, but more than them, more, those are good things. Promises are good things, but more than them, Christ himself is readily available for you. And so my, my plea I implore you, if you're here not a Christian, only trust him. Hear me call this morning, trust in Christ. He will not disappoint. There is no other place in which you can find solace. He is a great God and Savior. Let's pray.